0: It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, hello everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church, right here at Colorado Springs, and I'm so excited that you're tuning in today. We are looking at the cast of Christmas today, and you might be asking, "What is that?" Well. This is a time of year when I get a lot of questions of folks asking me about the Christmas story. Uh, Who were these individuals? The individuals like Caesar, Herod the Great, the Shepherds, the Wise Men. uh, All of these cast of characters that really make up the story around the narrative of the birth of jesus christ and so let's talk a little bit about that today i don't know if you remember as a child perhaps uh, standing outside grabbing the hose and drinking from the hose when you were playing outside well sometimes we use that uh, image of saying it's like drinking from a fire hose when you really crank up the water well that's what the broadcast will be like a little bit today because there's so much going on around the birth of jesus christ We're not going to be able to cover it all in one broadcast, so we're going to have to break this into a two-part as we examine the cast of Christmas. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2 today, so let's do that. Let's go right to Luke chapter 2 and kick off our study here today. Here's what we read. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone, to his own city. Now, from that narrative right there, you can ask that question, do we have any proof from historical sources outside of the Bible that the Roman emperor ever authorized a census? And the answer is quite simple, yes, we do. Caesar Augustus reigned as emperor of the Roman Empire from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D., 41 years in all. He's the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, who reigned until 44 B.C. His real name is Gaius Octavius, and Julius Caesar had legally adopted Octavius as his son, took the name Caesar from Julius, which in later years actually became the equivalent of using the title emperor, and Augustus is actually a Latin term that means worthy of reverence. Here you have this young man whose name is Gaius Octavius, and he becomes Caesar Augustus, which means emperor who is worthy of reverence. Okay, That just gives you an idea of the character of this man, such a humble man. Now, Augustus was convinced that belief in the old gods, that's what made Rome great. So he set out to encourage his subjects to return to the worship of all of the polytheistic culture of Rome, to return to the worship of all of these false gods. So he restored 82 temples in Rome alone, and it became known as the Pontifex Maximus. That's a title he gave himself as the highest priest in the state cult. So what exactly was it? That Caesar Augustus decreed, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. The King James Version of the Bible says that all the world should be taxed, but other translations often say something like this The NRS says that all the world should be registered, or that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, according to the NIV. So the Greek verb there is apographo, and it literally means to enroll or register as an official listing of citizens, if you will. So if we ask the question, "That is this a census or is this taxation? And the answer is both. It would have been a census to assess then what the taxation would look like, but only in part. I mean, Augustus was very interested in the number of citizens in his empire. He was especially interested in whether that number was growing. There's a lot of pride for a ruler in a census. And we see that what what impacted King David in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and 2 Samuel 24. And he also needed resources. This is the emperor. He would need the resources to fund the infrastructure of the entire empire and his war with the Persian empire and all of these 82 temple projects that he had going on there in Rome. So, What census then in particular of Luke chapter 2, verse 1 are we talking about here? Is there any record that such a census actually took place? I mean, if the Bible says it, there should be some historical evidence for it. Was there ever such a decree? And the answer is yes. In fact, he authorized three different censuses during his reign. How do we know this? The three censuses are listed in the Acts of Augustus, a list of what Augustus thought were his 35 greatest achievements during his reign. In fact, he was so proud of these censuses that he ranked them eighth on his list of accomplishments. Another census is actually mentioned by Luke in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. So the acts of Augustus were placed on two bronze plaques outside of his mausoleum after he died. That's how proud of these. That he was. I mean, this was something of a great accomplishment for him as he uh, wanted to know the size, the breadth, and width, depth of the Roman Empire. So, the, the three empire wide censuses actually took place in what history records as 28 BC, 8 BC, and 14 AD. In all three, the, the probability is that the one here is around 8 BC, is the one that Luke is mentioning in the Christmas story. Why then does it not align exactly with the birth of Jesus? Because if Jesus was born around 4 BC or in between 4 and 7, and that one actually began at 8 BC, do we have a, a an issue with the historical accuracy of the Bible? And the answer is no. It would have taken several years for the bureaucracy of the census to reach the entire region, especially Israel, there in the Roman Empire. I mean, you're talking about an empire that comprised of 32 countries, 2.3 million square miles at zenith. Therefore, any decree going forth would take time to fully execute, especially since there was an estimated 54 million people in the Roman Empire during the reign of Augustus. So, then we have to ask the question, did they really have to travel to Bethlehem for this census, now, now some scholars have scoffed at the notion that people in faraway Israel, like Joseph and Mary, would have had to travel to their ancestral birthplace for a census. But we have evidence to show that such traveling was indeed done with the Roman census in Egypt. At least we have historical evidence for that. So, a Roman census document dated to 104 A.D was discovered in Egypt in which the citizens were specifically commanded to return to their original homes for the census. Another census document in 119 A.D. has been found, which was very well intact. I mean, the detail of this document, all the way from 119 A.D., actually identifies what was required Of a family during a census. In fact, the name and names of the father, mother, and grandfather had to be captured. They had to be at their original village. Their age and profession had to be notated. Any physical scars had to be notated. Uh, The wife's name and age, wife's father and name, uh, the children's names and ages, names of relatives living with them. And the document then had to be signed by the village registrar and three official witnesses. A lot of detail captured there. And this particular document is of special interest because it gives us an idea of the kind of information that Joseph and Mary would have had to provide for this census. Now let's read on, verses 4 to 5. Luke chapter 2. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, Luke informs us that Joseph and Mary made their way to Bethlehem, which would have been at least a five-day journey of approximately 80 miles. Now, Nazareth was located in Galilee, which is uh, the north of Judea, and Luke informs us the journey to Bethlehem was upward. This is actually quite literal. Joseph and Mary went up from Galilee, and you're thinking, wait a minute, that's on the north end of Israel. They were going south. How would they be going up And it's because Bethlehem was in the hills. It's six miles south of Jerusalem, and it's 100 feet higher. In fact, its altitude is at 2,704 feet. So the Bible is quite literal, especially in this context here. They did travel uphill to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And now this journey wasn't an easy one, I mean, especially for a pregnant woman, nor was the occasion a happy one. I mean, in addition to this tax requirement, Mary and her husband would be far removed from friends and family if the baby were to arrive early while they were there in Bethlehem. Well, let's read what happens next, verses 6 to 12 here, Luke chapter 2. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her first son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you, and you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. All right, let's look at these shepherds for a a moment here. This another another group here in the cast of Christmas. I find it interesting that the first words out of the angel's mouth of such a glorious occasion is, do not be afraid. Now, this phrase seems so common in the Bible, you might think it was a heavenly language for hello. I mean, in the in the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds all heard that message. When they see an angel, the angel will say, do not be afraid. Okay, so those, I mean, here we're talking about some rugged group of guys. I mean, these shepherds were out in the wild areas. They were out in the wilderness they knew how to tend to wild animals. I mean, these are men's men, right? And yet here they are fearful as they see the angel. The angel knows exactly that they'll be fearful and tends to that. And so, you know, here they're a little bit weak at the knees. I mean, when the angel appeared at the night sky, that they're intimidated and rightfully so. Let's read on Luke 2, 13 to 20. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child, and all those who heard it marveled at those things which are told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So let's talk about these shepherds. I mean, like the the wise men of this story, of the cast of Christmas, they're a critical piece. I mean, they were selected by God. And they represent the very trade of King David, who was first a shepherd before he was a king, according to 1 Samuel 16, 1-13. So Jesus was born in the town of David as the heir of David from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist declared in John chapter 1, verse 29. So who better than to have come examine the Lamb of God than shepherds. I mean, they're the perfectly selected witnesses for this assignment. I mean, think about what Jesus would do time and time again. He always had the right witnesses at the right time. Jesus had people living in wine country in Cana, to taste his first recorded miracle of turning water to wine in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It was the best wine of the wedding feast. And so, of course, he has individuals who know wine to bear witness to that. Now, Jesus also had fishermen witness his miracle of breaking two fish with the five loaves of bread into. 5,000 that would feed 5,000 men and not including the women and children, and after which there would be 12 baskets left over, all of which was recorded in Matthew 14, John 6, Luke 9, and Mark chapter 6. He would even do it again in Matthew chapter 15 with seven loaves of bread and a few little fish, feeding a multitude who had been with Jesus for three days, and, they, and then they'd go and collect seven basketfuls afterward. So again, always having the right witness. For the right occasion. I mean, think about it, what Jesus did with Luke, Dr. Luke. Jesus had a doctor record his death and resurrection and then document the apostles' actions thereafter, including. The healing of a lame man in Acts chapter 3. The death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The blindness of Saul, who had become Paul. And the miracle of his sight being returned to him in Acts chapter 9. I mean, the list goes on and on. Even the resurrection of Eutychus, who fell asleep during church, falls out the window around midnight and dies out of a third-story window. And then Paul has to jump on his body, prays for him. He comes back to life in Acts chapter 20. Again, this is all by the witness of a doctor. I mean, the Lord always had the right witnesses for the right job. I, the prosecutor, Satan, cannot refute the evidence. We call him the prosecutor because of the courtroom scene in Zechariah chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 12. So let's examine it again from an ex- a standpoint of birthdays. I mean, after all, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. Let's talk a little bit about the history of birthdays for a moment. So let me clarify. Right out of the gate here, that we are not told in the Bible to observe the birth of Jesus Christ. I mean, Christmas is a tradition, and it's one that began around 300 years after Christ's death and resurrection because Romans were accustomed to celebrating birthdays. I mean, I could show you right now a picture that I have here of a Roman birthday invitation for one Claudia Severa, who was writing to her friend Sulpicia Lepidina. Around 97 AD, and, and it was so important for this birthday that it was engraved on a small wooden tablet, and it's an invitation to her friend for a birthday celebration that she's having on September 11th, and it ends with her well wishes to those who receive it in her own handwriting. So, Severus' letter reveals the importance that surrounded personal birthdays in the Roman culture. And like many civilizations, Romans enjoyed celebrating the beginning of things. They call the dies natales, the birth of a day, the birthday, the, the celebration of the beginning of something. Temples, cities, people, often remembered for the day of their beginning. And, and around 42 BC, Two years after his death, Julius Caesar's birthday began to be observed by all, but it was under Caesar Augustus in 19 B.C. when birthdays of living men would be officially recognized with festivals on the sacred calendar. So you see a great twist here? I love that. We talked about Caesar Augustus, emperor who's worthy of praise, right? This is the title he gave himself, Augustus. Desired to have the whole empire observe his birthday. Setting the standard for birthdays from that point forth. And he reigned during the birth of Christ. Yet no one remembers his birthday. Oh no, it's Jesus Christ's birthday. Celebrated all around the world. In 160 countries every year. Even by 92% of all Americans, according to Pew Research. Celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, not Caesar Augustus. And it was in 529 AD when Emperor Justinian made Christmas a civic holiday. And it coincided with the Roman uh, festivals for the new year. And, And what would happen is they would go into their homes, they would decorate their homes with greenery and lights and gifts that were given to children and to the poor. And ultimately, to me, what that means is that, yes, we've been observing this now for 1,500 years a tradition that was now coincided with the New Year festivals in Rome, it became a new tradition, a time to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And it seems fitting that Christmas symbolizes Christ. He comes to earth, he finds a pagan people in their evil ways and brings hope and renewal. So what started as a pagan and secular observance has now become a date to mark as a day of peace. In celebration of the King of Kings. And hopefully, ultimately for you, it's spending time with your family, celebrating what God has done. Yes, even in 2020, during this difficult time that we have had, we could still put our eyes on Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. We observe December 25th as Christmas, but the events of Luke chapter 2, 8 to 20, most likely occurred in September. Now, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer here. Uh, Just as an expository church, I gotta shoot you straight here, I gotta tell you how it is. Most likely it actually occurred in September, even though our tradition has it in December. A a reason for that, it it was perfectly timed with the holiest season of the year when the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles all took place about the same time, September into October. All those feasts were designed by God to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. So how do we know it was September? Well, the shepherds throughout the history would would be moving between the Jordan Valley in the winter where it's warm and they move out in the springtime as the Judean hills begin to green from the winter rain. So in March, they'd be at the lower side of the Judean hills where it would turn green earlier and they would keep moving up in search of the tufts of grass and greenery as the months progress into late spring, summer where it gets greener at the higher elevations. So the harvest of the wheat in Bethlehem, that region, and certainly in the shepherds' fields, all that occurs in late May or in June. And it was mandated to bring the offering of the first wheat to the temple in Jerusalem. So the farmers would allow the shepherds to come into their fields only after the harvest is completed. And after all the poor people who had been allowed into the fields to glean the wheat that was left over, you go back to the book of Ruth on that, This is still practiced in villages today in that region, so the whole process would be finished by the end of June. So the owners of the fields would then allow the shepherds to bring in their flocks into the fields. Why? Because the sheep help the farmers. The sheep will eat what's left of all the wheat stocks and then fertilize the lands from their droppings, thus cleaning the fields while fertilizing them for the next planting season. I mean, sheep are the best lawnmower you could ever develop. Not only do they mow it all the way down to the dirt, but they fertilize along the way. And then you have lambing season that really comes to play here because in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it states that the shepherds were staying awake at night. Okay, so when the angel appears, we have to understand the lambing season then in the Holy Land. This only occurs naturally in the sheep world In the declining daylight in the autumn, which starts in September, okay, and you look at the gestation period of sheep, which is about 147 days plus or minus five days. So the birth of the offspring would take place perfectly in the spring when the grass starts to grow in order to feed the mother who's maximizing her milk production. So during the mating season, the shepherds are out in the fields at night keeping watch over their flocks not only to protect them from predators, but also to separate the females that have already been impregnated from the rest of the males. Now, after the mating period, then the shepherds will slowly make their trek back down into the Jordan Valley to camp out for the winter at the lower elevations, and other animals will then be brought indoors for the winter months. And so because of the census... Many people had returned to Bethlehem and the small town, the small city, if you will, was overflowing with people. There's no room for Mary and Joseph in the inn, which forced them to take refuge in the only available shelter that was for the animals. So most likely the animals had not yet been brought inside for the winter months, which typically, on average, begins there around October. Okay, so you can see where we're picking up here. Let me see if I can get through just some more here with you in the final couple minutes that we have together. So where was Jesus born? Okay, traditionally, the inn that's referred to in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, is thought to be of some kind of commercial hotel, okay? And that the place where Mary and Joseph took shelter was some stable somewhere in the vicinity. Now, however, we don't know for sure if that was the case, because the Greek word there is translated as inn, is kataluma. And that can be also translated as a guest room. Okay, so this translation would lead us to envision more of a private home that was filled with people, plus a separate area used to house the family's animals. Now, sometimes the the place for the animals was located on the lower level of a house away from where the people lived, so when Luke refers to no room in the Cataluma, he could have meant that there was no room in the upper level which was already full of sleeping visitors and family. So, regardless, there was a manger or feeding trough in the place where Christ was born. And this was used as a resting place for the newborn Jesus, as it states in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. But I think there's a huge clue that's given to us in the Bible that is quite amazing. Okay? Jesus was born in the place in the northern part of Bethlehem called the Migdal Idar, that was a watchtower with a place underneath it that shepherds used during the lambing season to shelter the newborn lambs that would later be used as sacrifices in the Jerusalem temple. And the prophet Micah, who foretold Bethlehem as the place of the Messiah's birth, also mentions this migdal i He says this, As for you, watchtower of the flock, the migdal i This is a stronghold of daughter Zion. The former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to you, daughter Jerusalem, Micah chapter 4, verse 8. And then we get more. In Genesis chapter 35, verses 19 to 21, we read that this tower is mentioned again as being near the place where Rachel was buried, the wife of Jacob. And it's in Jeremiah, his words, the prophet, who will use that location of Rachel in a prophecy about Jesus in Jeremiah 31, 15. So this theory is used to explain why the heralding angels gave the sign that the baby would be wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, and that the shepherds seemed to know exactly where to look. It would be apropos then for the Messiah to be born in the same place where the sacrificial lambs were born. Look what God has done. He draws shepherds, to witness for themselves the birth of Jesus, the Lamb of God, and he brings witnesses from the land of the Chaldeans, the wise men from the same region of the world of Abraham to bear witness to the mediator of the new covenant of Hebrews chapter 8, one that would expand the covenant of the Genesis chapter 15 covenant according to Galatians chapter 3. Again, we're just getting into this. This is just scratching the surface of the of of Christmas. I hope you've been blessed. Please tune in again next week. We'll continue in this vein of thought as we examine all of the cast of characters, the whole cast of Christmas. We'll even talk about the star and all the details around the birth of Jesus even next week. And I hope you'll tune in again. Thank you for listening to Engage in Truth. To learn more about our ministry, visit us online at calvaryfountain.com. This is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship, Fountain Valley Church. Services are 8 a.m. and at 10 a.m. on Sunday. Of course, we have services throughout the week as well. We love to study with you. God bless you, my friends. Take care.